This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This episode is about a shift in consciousness. Our guest is psychologist Felicity Jeffries, and she says we need to prioritise learning from Indigenous people. And indeed, the Climate Action Show would like listeners to connect us with any knowledgeable people who can lead the way. You can contact us at climateaction3cr at gmail.com. But now, our guest producer is Mark Spencer in Aotearoa, New Zealand. He founded the Climactic Podcast Collective and this is his conversation with Felicity Jeffries about deep ecology. She says the change of consciousness starts with action. And her group, What Can I Do Australia, helps people get started. Felicity Jefferson is a registered psychologist with a BA in psychology with honours, a Master's of Psych with many other letters attached to that that I don't really understand or know very well. And she's also a qualified primary school teacher. So I feel like my questions and the level I'll be at, she'll be able to stoop down to my level quite easily, <laughs> which I really appreciate. And Felicity came to be on the show through a uh, guest form we actually have available on Climactic.fm. And it's a great way of getting people from all walks of life to express interest on being on one of the shows on the Climactic Collective. And of course, the beautiful thing about the network is we've got shows just about everything. Felicity came to us through this guest form on Climactic.fm, and that was really, really cool. It'll be great to talk to Felicity about her journey and what she's doing now at the start of 2022 and what the rest of the year is going to look f- like for her. And so we'll jump right into it. So hi, Felicity. Welcome to Serially Curious. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You've come to us to sort of talk about a, a particular thing, a um, a course you've set up in a running. We're going to hear a lot more about that and what your sort of goals are for, for 2022. But before we get into that, there's this concept that is sort of part of everything you're doing and you're, you're sort of steeped in a bit. And it's something I'm really curious about and I'd love to learn more about from you. And that's the concept of deep ecology. And can you tell us a bit about what, what deep ecology is, how you sort of came across it and, you know, how you describe it, I guess, to start as a concept to people? To be honest, I'm not even sure where I discovered it. Um, I think maybe through uh, some of the climate activist networks, um, probably online, um, sharing lots of resources there. But it was just um, an idea that really resonated with me. I mean, I think the history of it, it originates in the 1960s and is technically like a philosophical movement. Um, and it has clear principles and sort of goals and, and definitions. But, f- but for me, what really resonates is just that it recognises how deeply 
complex um, this reality is, um, nature and how interconnected everything is, in, including humans, and that we are a part of nature. And from that, there aren't simple solutions that are going to um, solve this ecological crisis. It really um, does come down to very deep core issues that I think psychology has a lot to offer as well. It's not a concept that you came across in the course of your studies or practicing of psychology as a psychologist. No, not at all. Do you feel like deep ecology is on its way to being sort of recognized by psychology? Well, from my education, which was very mainstream, it was, you know, six years of university studies, um, three years undergraduate, one year on it, and then two years the Masters of Clinical Psychology. We really barely even spoke about nature and the natural world. So I think it's a very uh, fringe um, area um, and one that I've sort of started to look into more since um, finishing. Yeah, so there's little pockets here and there of people um, recognizing it. And I think the climate crisis is um, bringing those conversations a lot more to the forefront. I assume it really would. Uh, do you imagine that nowadays, in uh, you know, if you were redoing, say, your undergraduate, awareness and concern about the climate crisis being much more common, do you feel like it would be much harder for the course you were doing, the professors who were taking it, to sort of not address sort of humans as members of nature, you know, humans as natural beings? Do you feel like it would be different for someone who's going through that course today? Yes, I think since uh, 2018, when the climate crisis has really been talked about in the mainstream, thanks to people like Greta Thunberg and movements like XR, I think the new generations coming through, even just, uh, I only finished my master's, I think, in 2019, but my uh, supervisor, who I'm still in contact with, told me that a lot of the new um, students doing the master's course are looking to do their, you know, th um, master's thesis in this area. And, and you know, look, they know that I'm interested in it. So that's why they're talking to me about it. But, yeah, I think since that time, things have, have changed dramatically. Can I ask what your master's thesis was on? So my master's thesis was on self-compassion. Um, and in parenting. Mm. So this was kind of presaging a little bit of an interest in, in primary school education for you? Um, I think it's a lot um, more complex than that. We, just, we could have <laughs> a whole big conversation about that, but, you know, um, talk about this a bit more later probably is that, you know, the ecological crisis and the climate crisis, it does come from humans and human behaviours and human behaviours come from human psychology and I guess in my search over the last 20 years of my life to see where can I contribute something novel and important I actually found that the way that we relate to ourselves is really fundamental to how we in relate to each other and to the world and one intervention that can help us have more harmonious empathic relationships is to develop our own uh, compassion for self and I was looking at it in parenting because that's where we really learn it um, is from our parents. So I guess to go a little bit pop psychology and to show my ignorance of sort of the nuances of the topic here, you know, we're talking about early childhood development and where our our relation to ourselves and then with and then through that how we relate to others and how we relate to nature, that coming from either, you know, the the nurture or nature perspective. But nature being, you know, the 
the genes and makeup of how we were born, there's also the the nature of like how much we actually interact with the natural world as young people. And I'm sort of curious if if this is a facet at all of early childhood development or psychology at all that you've seen other people interact with. And it's also, is this how you kind of think of it, that there's maybe a different facet beyond just how our parents raised us and how we were born? We are made up by how our parents raise us and the genes we're born with. Is there maybe like a missing element there around you know, the nature we're exposed to and what that nature exposure does to us as people? Yeah, so I think um, modern psychology really does focus um, a lot more now on, you know, the environment in terms of um, what we call it nurture, don't we? You know, the parenting, the educators around us, all those systems. Um, there's an ecological systems theory that looks at how that how that moves out to the broader, you know, um, you know, government systems and countries and world. But I think, yeah, one thing that is missing is that you know, the physical environment and access to nature, as in plants and animals and fresh air and things like that. So many questions I have sort of spilling off that of, you know, how how do we even start sort of quantifying what the impact of that is? And if we do find that, oh, my God, this does have a massive impact, how we kind of remediate that or fix that if you lacked that in your formative years, if it's possible to ever catch up with a, with a lack of natural connection as a young person, but how did you kind of become aware of the potential importance of sort of natural connection and like, where does this, this interest come from for you? Hmm, it's very hard to say. Um, so I grew up um, in Mount Truitt in Sydney, which is sort of a low socioeconomic area. We weren't that far from the Blue Mountains, to be honest. So every now and again, we take a trip up there, but my family didn't really spend that much time in nature. We didn't go camping or anything. I would say it's it's always been an innate thing for me. Um, they, I can't remember the name of the theory, but there's the theory of oh, Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence, as identifies that there's all these various um, domains that people can have strengths in. And I, I just think I've always been quite connected to nature, just uh, intrinsically, um, and and had that deep sense of its importance and value. So that's cool. There is some. Scholarly work around this. There is some kind of theories that we can build off as we kind of begin to learn more about this importance of a natural connection with the world as as human beings. But you know, at some point, you know, it wasn't always the case, right? That we we had we had to worry about it because it was completely natural. It was like the default state that you were born, you're exposed to the world you gain an understanding and respect for it. And it's possible then to kind of think of yourself as a, as an ecological natural being and not have to think about nature as, as an, another thing to think about because you're just, you're part of it. Um, the health of the local stream is your health directly. But I guess that gets into the question of, of when you think we lost this and, and how, and we'll get into, you know, what we can maybe do about it, but where do you kind of, and it, I guess it's just only interesting academically, but how do you personally think about how we kind of slowly weakened and lost that relationship as as natural beings? Yes, I think it has been um, a slow degradation of that relationship over time. And I think many would say that it originates around, you know, 12,000 years ago with the agricultural revolution. Supposedly, we 
moved away from a more hunter-gatherer style of living and were able to stay in one place. And then slowly over time, we've been more and more removed from how dependent we are on the health of the rivers and the crops and the weather and things like that. And um, especially with cities, um, we've sort of created these walls to divide ourselves from nature. And I, th- I think there is a protective um, function for that. As a thought experiment, like you hear people constantly these days talk about the impacts of social media on young people developmentally. And does it does it feel weird at all to you that like, oh, well, why why do we focus so much on social media and its impacts uh, on people since MTV or television or mass media was the baseline? Why do we worry about this just latest little mini step rather than a big step change, I guess, like the introduction of agriculture and the domestication of people and then the becoming settled and like it feels kind of weird right to be talking about the impact that agriculture had on us as people 12,000 years ago and yet that was the step change <laughs> I guess like do you, do you think it's important I guess when looking at the development of young people it's worth kind of actually acknowledging that hey this this isn't how our ancestors 15,000 years ago lived and we're still those beings, you know, genetically, mm. you know, it's it's was it's not that long ago in terms of yeah evolutionary biology. Mm. Yes, definitely, uh, because I think the way a lot of social media works is it does take advantage of, uh, you know, our mammalian brain and you know those dopamine pathways, especially because of the economic system that we live in, which is very you know profit driven. And a lot of these apps um, and, and programs and things, they're designed to make money and they make money by keeping you hooked, keeping you engaged. Um, so I think it is having a lot of you know negative impacts on our attention and taking up time. But at the same time, I think it is a, a wonderful tool that if we learn to use it wisely, it, it, there's a lot of potential there as well with um, social media and technologies. But it, it is very tricky. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion, east or west. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with love, I could hold my head back. Thank you. So I guess with acknowledging, I, I think we, we both think that it's a problem that we are disconnected from nature in, in our modern times for, you know, yes, countless reasons and varying extents. But like, you know, people living in Australia are largely disconnected from the natural world around them, which makes it harder to empathize with and care about and protect the natural world leading to a climate crisis. I think that's maybe simplifying things, but, but useful. What's a way we can address it? Or maybe what's just one, one particular way that you can think of that we can, we can push back against that. I don't know whether you call it a trend or that, that result of modernity. I think the 
uh, you know, our daily habits are really um, important and powerful. And just um, if we can build in something small but consistent that is going to um, build over time um, a way to connect to nature. And one practice that I really love, uh, which I learned from Anna Greer of Moving Mindful Nature, is called the Sit Spot Practice. And so that involves finding a place uh, somewhere in in nature, as as nature as you can get, even if that's just your balcony or your garden, and just going there regularly and spending you know up to an hour there. But even if it's only five minutes, ideally a few times a week if you can, and just sitting there and being curious about what's around you. And it's really interesting and unexpected what happens as you do that practice. For me, I really struggle with being busy. That's my issue. And so I haven't spent a lot of time doing this practice. But even the time that I have, I start to realize that now my sit spot, it feels like home, feels very familiar. I feel like we have a relationship And I'm learning more and more about what's there. You know, the other day I saw a little red crab come out and it was rolling a seed and that felt really special. And I found like a bird's nest that, um, you know, sometimes the mama bird goes there and you see it in, in the rain, you see it in the evening, in the morning and the different creatures that come and it's small and it's something that we might think is a bit silly, but I think it is actually um, way more powerful than we, we could even imagine. That's more tangible and real and, and directly applicable than anything I could have imagined. And um, as soon as you said sit spot, I was like, okay, I'm prepared for an acronym or for this. <laughs> but no, like I, I absolutely love that just how doable that is. And I think in my own life, I go for walks and I go somewhere different largely each time. Or even if it's the same spot, I take a different route because just it's about not being. It's about avoiding <laughs> my office and computer more than it is about acknowledging and enjoying the natural setting as much. I really love that you by yeah finding your spot. You know you are you're comfortable with that natural setting. It, you're you're a part of it, and then. So it, it becomes a part of you and it becomes just part of your framing, I guess, for how you think about the world, your context. That's that's lovely. Any pointers on on the perfect sit spot if you are in a suburb and you've got a park or a lake, I don't know, or a beach, if you're lucky, like in Melbourne, like do all of them. I think if you can find somewhere where there's, um, well, this is what I learned from Anna, like two ecologies meeting, especially, you know, if there's a, a body of water and land, um, there'll be, you know, a lot of diversity there, which will be really engaging. That's a really good point. But a I lot of our parks, right, just when they're just grass and trees, you won't get a lot of the, the dynamism of life. Yes, but I think whatever you have, they'll give it a go and, and wait and see what happens over time. I think you'll be surprised. But I think there's another powerful aspect, like even if you just forget um, nature, is the sitting aspect. I think we have this culture that is also harmful, which requires us to be constantly doing and busy and moving from the past to the future. And we never really just 
be and listen and allow um, what's around us to teach us in a more passive way. We're all, we're very you know active and pushing for pushing for things. And there's a quote by Bio Akomolafu who says, "The times are urgent. Let us slow down." And I think that's another lesson that we really need to embrace now. How do you kind of help people who you know have that affliction that we all do of busyness? Like, what are the benefits, I guess, of, of spending time in the present? I, I honestly find it hard to think about a lot of times I spend during a week where I am just being present or still, or even if I'm doing something like, like reading a book, it'd be the closest I'd get to this. And even that's about consuming a story, consuming knowledge. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a forward act as well, how I do it. How would you kind of, I don't know, help me <laughs> if I was asking you for help in, in being present more of the time? Yeah, I think there's two things. And I think one reason why we don't want to just be is because there's probably um, things we don't want to feel that come up when we don't have a distraction, even if it's just exhaustion, <laughs> you know, feeling tired or having a headache when you sit, you become aware of that. We need, we, need, we need distractions. And so that might be too much, you know, ideally I think meditation practice is an ideal way to just be um, just focusing on your breath. But for some people that's too much. And so I think things like um, slow practices, I, like yin yoga is amazing, um, creating some art, you know, whether it be painting or sewing or whatever you like, just something that's not for profit, you know, it's not not for a purpose, it's just to enjoy that, that moment or writing your thoughts down, just anything a bit s- slow gardening. And these are all activities that kind of carry the same positives of your sit spotting or your spending time in nature, but they don't have the extra benefits that sitting in nature give you, which I framed it terribly, but <laughs> would you mind kind of yeah, like helping us sort of quantify or understand what what benefit do we get from spending that time in nature rather than say at home doing doing art practice? Not that that's a bad thing to do, but what are like some of the extra elements you get from nature time? Yeah, so there are plenty of studies that um, show us that spending time in nature has a whole heap of benefits on our mental health and physical health, reduced stress levels, re- reduced depression and anxiety, increased well-being. I think there's studies showing that in soil there's all these m- microorganisms that when we breathe them in they increase dopamine. Um, to be honest, I haven't read a, bothered to read a lot of studies about the benefits of nature because for me it just seems so obvious yeah as you said before you know if you think about it we evolved our brains our nervous systems in nature that's where we're meant meant to be there's there's fresh air um but i think there's a lot more beyond the you know physical mental health benefits regarding um some of those deeper questions that people have about you finding a place to belong connection meaning purpose and there's so much wisdom I think in in nature that from 
you know, our colonial origins that we have lost touch with. Absolutely. And to start kind of pushing back against that a bit, you know, as we record this, it's it's just the first week of the new year and a lot of people will be on, you know, those New Year's resolutions kicks and they'll be wanting to do something beneficial and improve themselves. And as you say, there's a host of benefits of being outdoors. So like maybe to make it really practical and boil it down for folks, what's a, a New Year's resolution style approach to increasing your nature time? Yeah, I guess, like I said, um, it's about your daily, weekly habits or even a month or something. But um, with goals, it's very easy to set them and it's hard to keep them. And so having things like an accountability buddy or actually come up with a, a smart goals, I don't know if people know about that, you know, Um set a date book book it in you know if you want to go camping you know once every two months or something like that actually start planning your first um time now look at your schedule roster it in there and the reasons why people wouldn't do this aren't very compelling or good except for the fact that we all suffer from an, an inability to do things that are good for us or things we enjoy sometimes and i guess the the catch-all label for that is is apathy or it's busyness or apathy spawning from our busyness. And how would you kind of describe the power that apathy has to to stop us from doing these positive things? And like, like, do you, do you feel like apathy like this is a, is a large force in society that we're living in now? I think it is, and I think that. Um it does come back, I think, to the profit-driven economic system that, you know, a lot of advertising does send these messages that increase this sense of powerlessness and helplessness and that the answers in buying this or having that, that will solve those problems we have. But it, it keeps us powerless at the at the same time. So I think it is a huge problem in society that that has its roots in in the economic system. So with things how they are, how do you advise people to confront those feelings? You know, if like many of these conversations and I have many that I, you know, times when I agree with people about economic changes and, and societal changes, but they're always, you know, step zero, change everything. And then I can get onto step <laughs> one of like spending more time in nature. Yes. It's like, how have you, I guess we've, we have talked about it, but like what's maybe step one for someone in confronting their apathy and spending more time in nature. And then we'll get into, you know, what, what else people can do beyond that first step. But maybe I think you, you said before, you know, accountability buddies are a great way to do it using things like new year's resolutions. But even I guess earlier in the process than that, like, I guess someone has to know why they should, what's a why 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 should they take that first step i mean for me having apathy it doesn't feel good and living from a place of apathy and making decisions from a place of apathy it doesn't feel good and so i question you know is this something you want to keep carrying around with you do you want to keep this apathy with you is it serving you and if it's not then decide that you want to get rid of it 
and recognize the origins. I think this is a really powerful, powerful thing in psychology and healing is when we realize the origins of something that isn't serving us, then we can start to release it. And I would say that that apathy, it comes from outside of you. It's not your natural state. And Yeah, you'd be a pretty crummy organism who is uh, in a natural state, kind of not interested and doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So once someone's taken that first step and they've decided, all right, you're right. You know, why, why aren't I doing something? Well, I, uh, why, why, why should I do something differently? Well, it doesn't feel good not doing something. And if I do something, it'll be good for me. So it opens the question up of what can I do once I've decided to make a change? And I understand you've got some thoughts on that. What, what, can I do? What can people do? To the extent that, and we haven't talked about it up until this point, but you started something in 2021 and it was called, What Can I Do? And can you tell us a bit about that? What What is this thing and when did you start it? So I started it in May last year. Prior to that, I'd sort of you know, I spent most of my adult life, to be honest, studying and doing my career, but in 2018, I sort of, everything came to a peak, I guess, with the climate crisis and realized, okay, time to get really active. And so I started doing a bit more activism. But then I sort of thought about it more and I realized there's so many people here in society that are concerned about it, but they're in this place of apathy. And what are the barriers to people getting involved? Because I really believe that if enough of us get involved, we can solve this crisis or at least um, reduce the, the negative impact significantly. And I think that psychology has so much to offer and I'm really grateful that I've spent so many years studying this because, the, you know, the climate crisis, it's created from human behaviour and that comes from human thoughts and our beliefs and our assumptions we have. So I think psychology has a huge role to, to play in the, the shift that needs to happen in, in our behaviours. So I wanted to apply my knowledge as a psychologist to trying to solve this issue of how do we get more Australians to feel empowered to do what they can to help the climate crisis and not feel so overwhelmed or apathetic or or just confused about what they can do. So, yeah, that's why I created the the main part of what can I do Australia is our 10-week climate action challenge. We've run that twice and we're getting to run that again on the 24th of January for the third time. So after, you know, years of, of looking at this question, what, what can we do and, and being an activist, I've sort of distilled down 10 of the main things that just regular Aussies can do to help. And they're really quite simple things that we, we can all do. But throughout the course, you commit to taking an action a week in 10 different areas. And through that process, you learn about, okay, this is where I have power. I also have power here. I have power here. And then that's knowledge that you have, you know, to, to go forward after the course. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time.
here's a lovely traditional song called Through Bushes and Briars, sung by a trio with Miguel Heatwally. He is an ardent environmentalist, one of those musicians who generously lends his voice to many a rally and turns up everywhere. Through bushes and through briars, I've lately made my way. All for to hear the small birds sing And the lambs to skip and to play All for to hear the small birds sing And the lambs to skip and to play I overheard a female, her voice it rang so clear. Long time have I been waiting for the coming of my dear. Long time have I been waiting for the coming of my dear. Sometimes I am uneasy and troubled in my mind. Sometimes I think I'll go to my love and tell to him my mind. Sometimes I think I'll go to my love and tell to him my But if I should go to my love, my love, he will say nay. If I show to him my boldness, he'll never love me again. If I show My boldness, he'll never love me again. Through bushes and through briars, I've lately made my way all for to hear the small birds sing and the lambs to skip and to play all for to hear the small birds sing and the lambs to skip and to 
preparation for for this and we you know and talking offline i asked you the question of what would you do if you had you know a, a big soapbox you had you know the opportunity to to be interviewed by the abc or you know some other sort of mass media like what's a a message you think you'd want to share with a big crowd of people and what you said was that it's important that we shift consciousness to create social change that the a shift in consciousness is required for social change and how do you kind of define that that statement i guess like you know and and how do you kind of i guess support it like what what evidence have you seen for this and in, in your own understanding of how society has changed over time um how do we shift consciousness and and why? I'm very inspired and I think um, this quote sort of sums up this idea and I think it's from Albert Einstein and it says that no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Very succinct. Like you absolutely nailed it. That is the answer to the <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. But how, how do we shift it? That is that is the challenge. Um and I think, you know, ideas are really powerful and, and conversations and, and thinking deeply. But I think we, we first need to diagnose the problem, which is that some of our beliefs and ways of thinking are unhelpful and they are creating this. We probably want to work out what they are. And then we want to look at what are the alternatives um, and I think there are also practices that help us to to shift our consciousness. I think the sit spot practice is one. I think meditation is one. But I think we also need to be prioritizing learning from indigenous peoples. If if not just because they have lived, you know, sustainably, they don't have the problem that we have of, of destroying the planet. When I say we, I'm talking about those identifying with the dominant culture. And I think there's so much in terms of shifting consciousness that can happen when we, we learn from First Nations peoples. Uh, one book that I'm, I've just started reading, which is blowing my mind, is Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkapura. If you haven't read that, um, definitely read it. I'm going to read it numerous times. How do you feel at the start of 2022? And I guess for so for everyone, the last two years have just been um, unexpected. We've been unprepared. <laughs> um, and they've just felt like just massive. So here we are at the start of the, the third year of, of the COVID era. And it's another year down in the, the climate race to net zero. And you're doing something about it. So I guess, how do you kind of feel about just the world <laughs> and what it is you're doing through What Can I Do? And I guess, what what kind of emotions are you feeling on any kind of given day? Well, I think the main one is just exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a big time and, you know, last year starting What Can I Do on my own, I, I think I did burn myself out a bit. So I am hoping to take a bit more time to go in with this year and, and self, have self-care and hopefully with with the team I'll be able to do that a bit more but I you know I also feel inspired like I feel like what can I do Australia is growing now and every day um people I'm reading people's comments on the Instagram and, and getting emails from people and it's just 
you know it's it's giving me hope and and yeah so I think it's it's you know both exhausted and inspired there you go that's a it's a potent cocktail (laughs) (laughs) another really great concept that really um I sort of try to live by and he's integrated into the what can I do Australia course comes from Joanna Macy and that's the concept of active hope so she differentiates between hope that is based on expecting a certain outcome uh, or hopefulness and the other is a hope based on what we desire that's not tied to the outcome and she also calls that active hope where we're actively working to try to bring about that that reality and so for me it's not necessarily about whether we're successful or not it's about the process and when I'm living from this place of active hope it helps me you know when I get out of bed in the morning brightens my day rather than um maybe yeah some of those other things well thank you so so much for your time Felicity and I'm really excited about what can I do and to see where it goes so I would highly, highly recommend anyone listening to check out What Can I Do Australia on their Instagram account. But thank you so much. <laughs> You've been a champion. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Following Felicity and Mark's conversation, I thought I'd like to explore this question of the disconnect that many people feel from nature. I'm not so sure it goes back to that time when so many people left an indigenous way of life and settled in farms and in cities. Jeff Sparrow's new book, Crimes Against Nature, has a chapter called War on Nature. He reminds us that in the 19th century, industrialization in Europe, ordinary people were exiled from the land. He quotes one of the Chartists, in the 1840s, who remembered his childhood in England, he said, the very trees possessed an individuality and the balmy air was laden with the hum of unseen insects. Later in his adult life in the cities, he found, quote, animal life appeared to be extinct and no plants grew among the grime. Now, I think this is happening all over the world, still happening. People who were once receptive to nature, tuned into the very seasons for survival and protective of the land, are sucked into city slums or a sort of industrialised agriculture that is destructive. As Babette reminded me, 
Many also leave now because it is just so hard. Thank heavens for those who stay. Another book is by James Rebanks. It was called English Pastoral, and he describes how the recent catastrophic floods in England have forced authorities to go back to the upland farmers who can restore the water catchment and prevent future damage. And I think this rest restoration work is also happening. It may be patchy, but it's happening all over the world. And this is a huge job for all of us going into the future. As Jeff Sparrow says, we can learn a new relationship with nature. We have the example of, you know, 40,000 years or more of Indigenous civilization on the Australian continent where we have an entire culture that did not live in a wilderness. Actually, Indigenous people lived on a continent which they reshaped fundamentally by the way that they lived and the way they interacted with the natural world. The point being, however, that Indigenous culture developed over thousands of years to improve the natural, um, to, to improve the ecosystems, to enable, enable animals and plants to flourish, to avoid destroying ecosystems. It is possible for us to have a more beneficial relationship with the natural world. The question is how we go about doing it. And that I think is, you know, is the fundamental question that we have to address. It's not that human beings are somehow a blight on the planet, that we destroy nature every time we, we touch it. That's not the case at all. In fact, we have tens of thousands of years of history that shows the opposite. But, you know, something happens, um, you know, in the modern era that, that, that fundamentally changes how we relate to nature. And that something is capitalism. Yes. And, you know, that's the problem we face. But when did we become so careless of nature, so indifferent, that extinctions of species are now happening at scale? Jeff Sparrow describes how the Soviet Union in the 20th century, like Britain in the 19th century, had to acclimatise millions of men and women to ways of living and working that were foreign to them. This included new ways of relating to nature by dominating it. Stalin's slogan in the 1930s was, the war on nature. In the 20s, natural reserves had been set up in the new Soviet Union. They wanted to study ecosystems to protect forests and regulate hunting and stop erosion. These places were called Zapovedniki and they were set up in the early days of the revolution. But under Stalin, the scientists there and environmentalists in the Zapovedniki were denounced as saboteurs, then they were arrested and tortured. As Jeff Sparrow comments, the results of the war on nature were disastrous, with salinization, radiation, a changed water table and artificial flooding, millions of hectares of good topsoil lost. He tells us of a monument in a steel town in the Ural Mountains to, quote, the victims of the ecological terror. Well, I can think of a few places where we could have monuments like that. Can't you, here in Australia? I saw once an open air museum over past Broken Hill, which showed the desert caused by overgrazing. There were huge photos of the millions of sheep they grazed out there. Now it's just desert with emus strutting about. In China, 
Mao Zedong was famous for gargantuan engineering projects, which included massive deforestation and the repression of people. Who knows if the current Belt and Road mega project will be any more careful with nature? As Jeff Sparrow shows, we've had generations now, whether under capitalism or communism, where we've exploited nature to the extent that now we've changed the chemical composition of the oceans and burdened the atmosphere with climate changing gas. He says old school leftists saw progress as a steady mastery of the world, seen in hydro dams and infrastructure. They saw environmentalists as, quote, middle class dreamers and elitists hostile to the needs of working people. And I think we need to rewind to that battle and find a way forward. When the Green Bands movement was shut down in Sydney, Norm Gallagher, the opposite sort of union leader to Jack Mundy, sneered at environmental campaigners as, quote, residents, sheilers and poofters who deprive our members of their jobs. And are we still living this war between the environment and jobs? I think we'll hear a lot of it leading up to the election. The Greens will be typecast as, quote, middle class dreamers and elitists, hostile to the needs of working people. And the ALP, knowing that only 14% of us are even in a union, may not stand up for the climate action at scale that we need. They will promote fracking the north for gas that will cook the planet and contaminate the great artesian water source. It should be unthinkable, but will we stand up against that? Jeff Sparrow reminds us of other times when workers were unorganised and casualised and intimidated when vulture capitalism was at its worst. This is his way forward. Yeah, so look, um, at the end of your book, in the conclusion, you mentioned 12 things that people can do to solve the climate crisis. I try to make an argument about the viability of a planned economy and why that is the, the necessary solution to climate change. I've just actually got a piece in the, the Guardian at the moment making that, making precisely that argument. You know, one of the real difficulties in, in the way that the, the, the mainstream debate about climate change proceeds is that it takes for granted the centrality of markets. And so most of the arguments are based around how is it we are going to find a way to make the market make us stop digging up coals. You know, and when you think about it like that, it's utterly unhinged. I mean, there's no other way in which we would say that you know, rather than saying, okay, here is this thing that we know we need to do, so let's do it. We have to say, we, here is this thing that we need to do. Let's find a way to make the market make us do it. But, of course, establishing a planned economy is not something that we're going to be able to do tomorrow. So as the crisis worsens, we need to be prepared to argue. I think that's one of the weaknesses of the left at the moment is that um, because we've been isolated for so long, a lot of us are not actually very good at persuading other people. Recognising that we're in a minority, we have to start prosecuting these arguments and learning ways to make them palatable to other people. So neither pandering to people who disagree with us nor hectoring them, trying to meet people where they're at and trying to persuade them, which is easier said than done, but it's what we have to do. But I'll leave the last word to climate scientist Dr. Salim Ulhaq. He says 
more than money, more than infrastructure, what we need to build is social capital, which brings us back to Felicity Jeffries and Mark Spencer trying to shift our consciousness. Dr. Salimul Haq says in Bangladesh, they are putting all their resources into training people so they know what to do. And by regularly showing solidarity, they build the social capital we so desperately need now. So we have a policy of no one gets left behind. School kids in the coastal zone get training on, they get assigned households, you know, a widow living on her own. There'll be two school children whose assignment is to go and get the widow and take her to a, a shelter to make sure that she uh, is taken to a shelter. And, and it's the most effective cyclone evacuation in the whole world, I can tell you. It's the most effective in the whole world. Now here's Tom Ballard and Emerald Moon from their podcast, Seriously Dangerous, talking about the new film, Don't Look Up. All right, time for Movie Corner, everyone. Just me looking down. <laughs> we wanted to discuss the hot film that everybody's been talking about since it was released on Christmas Eve, the new film Don't Look Up, courtesy of the film director, Adam McKay. I actually find the end of this film very moving. I'm a big old gay softy or whatever, but I did find that extremely moving and even while I have a lot of obviously anxiety and concern about the climate crisis on a regular basis there are a few moments when it you know the reality of it actually sinks in or cuts through or you're reminded of what we're actually talking about here which could be quite literally the end of life on this planet and our inaction our inertia the stupidity of our politics and inability to confront that at all like it, the, the total effect of this film to me was bringing that home in a certain way to the point where I, I did find that quite moving and I think that was probably the only successful part of the film. But tell me about, like, why is it? Why is this film so controversial? Like, why are people, why do people have so many takes about it, do you think? It certainly hit a nerve in, in some respect and a lot of very passionate responses, yes. Um, a lot of film critics from, from you know, really across the board, it was actually pretty extraordinary, gave it a real uh, thumbs down. Yeah. But also a lot of the... Criticism seems to be that it was smug. It was trying to imply that everybody is too stupid and doesn't have the answers, unlike Adam McKay and Leonardo DiCaprio, who are cool and smart enough to care about climate change. And I disagree with that. I don't actually think <laughs> I don't... that the targets of the satire in this film were ordinary people for the most part. Overwhelmingly, the targets of the film are the media institutions and corrupt politicians and their donors who refuse to adequately address this this problem in a, in a serious way, particularly the media. I mean, the stuff that bites the most is the flippant way that the media uh, approaches and discusses and tries to explain this issue to to audiences. Would that be fair enough? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I I don't really know how anyone can watch the film and be like, oh yeah, the problem is that the people didn't look up because you know, a whole probably a third of the film is about this kind of like, you know, a an awakening in much a way that we have seen, I suppose, recently with, with climate change where the populace understands that this is an urgent issue and they desperately want action and, you know, there's yeah. there's hashtags and there's there's rallies and there's there's all of these events and, and people really care. Um, but the problem is that the people who actually hold the reins uh, are not willing to, to act in a way that will actually save the planet. Um, which is why I think that like a lot of the the criticism that that I read or kind of the the commentary centered on this question of will it 
change minds in a way that it needs to, yes. as though as though changing minds were the objective that will somehow solve this problem when I think what this film shows is that just looking up and becoming aware of the problem is really not enough. Like, I, I you know, this idea that, yeah, it's probably true, climate deniers um, or, you know, the far right or whatever, like conservative voters probably won't watch this movie because it's not enjoyable for them to consume and they may just not even come across it. But it's like, it doesn't even matter if it doesn't change those minds. But I think like how I felt about that, that scene around the dinner table and the way that it made me just think maybe I should just give up is that that I think is my issue with the film is that it really paints a disempowered citizenry, which is true in under our current system. Like ordinary people have very little power individually um, relative to, you know, billionaire donors and and politicians and and corporations but this is the whole point is that it shows that that's why individual action doesn't work but it doesn't then provide an alternative vision for mass mobilization or direct action mm. or anything that you know the public could do to actually overthrow overthrow the system it just it kind of gets to the edge of a critique of capitalism um, and stops at the the faces of, of capitalism and and the individuals and the kind of surface levels without yeah showing that what is really needed is systemic overthrow and how we might get there and that's probably too much to ask like it's already a lot to fit in a film I'd like to thank our guests today Mark Spencer and Felicity Jeffries. For more podcasts about climate change, go to climactic.fm. Thanks to singers Alastair King, Anthony Walcott and Miguel Heatwally for the song Through Bushes and Briars. Thanks also to Jeff Sparrow for his book Crimes Against Nature. And you can hear an interview with him at Greenleft TV. And just before we go, please become a subscriber to Radio 3CR. If you are listening here, even to the podcast, you must realise how important independent and trustworthy media is. Subscribers are members of a very honourable club that keeps avant-garde ideas and people out there in the front until the world catches up. You can phone to become a subscriber, which will help 3CR stay on air, Phone in um, office hours 039419 You can also pay online by going to 3CR Subscribe. It's $35 for concession holders, $75 if you earn a wage, and $150 if you want to subscribe as a group or solidarity member. For those of you who are already members, it's time to renew your subscription. Thank you for listening. We'll read any feedback on air, so contact us at climateaction3cr at gmail.com. And here's a taste from Lynette in New Zealand. She wrote to us, What a wonderful resource this is. I was drawn very much to your podcast on the documentary Once You Know. It relates very much to what we are doing here. Thanks, Lynette. And thank you, Lynette for contacting us. Any listeners, if you want to contact us, please uh, know that I, I will read your words on air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.